and my wife was adjunct professoring for a small um, private school in Indianapolis that was a Christian school, and they would have me come in and speak their chapel services and guest lecture, and I realized like the more I got around college students, I'm like, man, there's just something coming alive in me that that's not coming alive in me just pastoring, right? And uh, I was like, but I don't, I don't know, maybe it's just a unique niche thing, whatever. And I'll never forget that I was at a Chi Alpha retreat for Missouri State University, and we were in Conway, Missouri at a campground, and I was standing there at a creek, and the Lord spoke to me and said, just prepare yourself, I'm about to change everything you understand about ministry. And I thought, because I was going through um, this season where I was relearning what it looked like to evangelize. Because I, I want to be honest with you, I grew up, um, first of all, for a long time, non-denominational Pentecostal, became Assemblies of God probably around freshman, sophomore year of high school. Didn't really take faith seriously until high school. So we went to these churches. I, w I would say I was not a believing Christian. I was a practicing Christian who really didn't want to live it out at all. I just wanted to live my own life. Until an older man found me, fought for me, fed me the truth of the gospel, and discipled me into becoming a believer. Um, and that's one thing I love about this church. I love the fact that I can look out and see a lot of gray hair. And the reason why I love that is because I'm a product of older saints who invested in a younger man, believed that they saw something. And so seniors have encouraged me when I needed it, and with their jokes, humbled me when I needed it, right? <laughs> Because how many of you know seniors have the best jokes around? I mean, it's the truth. We had a senior in our church named Joe Stuckey. And he would come up to me and he would say, I just want you to know one thing, Mr. Josh. And I'd say, what's that? He goes, there's only two tough guys in this church and I'm both of them. Right? <laughs> yes, sir. Whatever you say. Right? Um, but I was going through a journey of rediscovering how to evangelize. Because growing up in church, I always heard like, go and win people to Christ. And and I'm the kind of person that if I had to strike up a conversation with a stranger in an airplane, I'd rather die, to be honest with you. I don't want to do that. And so I was like, what does it look like to do evangelism when this isn't natural to my personality? How do I even do this? Is, is there no place for people like me? And the Lord was taking me on a journey, which, which I wrote in a book. Like, this is what this is all about. Um, living a questionable life is, how do people who are not naturally gifted for evangelism do evangelism effectively? Okay. And so I brought this today, and um, I'm, not, I'm not embarrassed about plugging my own book. Here's why. The proceeds go to help fund Chi Alpha missionaries who don't have the networks big enough to get them on the field. So when you buy a book, you're supporting missions. And you're not supporting me. You're supporting other missionaries who don't have people to get behind them and help them get on the field. Because in Chi Alpha, we win a lot of people to Jesus, and then imagine what it's like for a person who doesn't have any believing parents, any believing family, to say, I'm going to be a missionary. I went to school for four years to become a psychologist. I'm going to scrap that and be a missionary. Will you support me? They're like, no. I supported your school tuition. I'm not, I'm not taking that any further. And so there's students that feel called into missions, and they don't know how to get, they're going to get there. They don't have the finances. And so when you do one of these books, it's going to help them get there, Okay. So I encourage you to go pick up one. But as I was in this journey of what does evangelism look like, I thought when the Lord said, be ready, I'm going to change everything you know about ministry, I thought he was getting ready to walk our church through a new evangelism strategy to reach our community. That, that's how I contextualized it. 
And then I was like, I can't wait. I got to get back to our cabin. I got to tell my wife, Danny, everything the, the Lord's revealing. And I get back, and Danny says, before you tell me whatever it is, because I can see on your face you have something to tell me, I need to tell you the Lord spoke to me in a dream last night. And I was like, this is amazing. What happened? She goes, I, I, I dreamt I was pregnant. I was like, no, no. No, that's, that's, that's not the Lord. That's, that's the devil, right? Because uh, I was done, right? And, and like, like surgically done. Like we can't have no more kids. So I was like, I, I, that's, it's going to have to be a miracle, right? And she goes, no, 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 it's not a natural birth. She says, the Lord spoke to me. We're about to birth something new in ministry. And I go, oh, Lord. That's it. You're about to do something crazy at our church. And then we get a knock on the door. And it's Andy Estrella, who's no stranger to this church. And Andy, who's the director at Missouri State, who I met as a freshman at Bible College. He's been my friend for, gosh, I hate to even say it, 20 plus years. But he says, listen, I can't fight this nagging feeling that you were made perfectly to do what we do in Chi Alpha. I know you love your church. I know you love pastoring. But as my friend, would you at least pray about doing Chi Alpha? And I said, Andy, most oftentimes I would just say no. Because Andy has tried to get me to consider Chi Alpha a hundred times before this. He would call me, be like, you're missing out. It's the best thing. I'm like, I'm sure it is. I love what I'm doing. I don't want to leave. And, and I, was, I was happy. Um, and honestly, I spent four years in Springfield. I was a graduate of Central Bible College. Um, I loved my time in Springfield, but I love Indianapolis. Like, that's, that's my home city, right? So I didn't want to leave. And, um, and I said, but listen, because I can see the seriousness in, in your face, and because we're such close friends, I commit, I will um, pray about it and fast on it for a month. I'll take the month of October, and we'll see what happens. Now, here's what you have to understand. In the back of my mind, I know how the Assemblies of God system works. And I knew that my wife, who is also a graduate of AGTS, had way too much master's degree debt for us to even qualify as missionaries. We were over the debt threshold. So I'm saying yes to Andy in my mind going, it's not going to happen. We have too much debt. And so I said, Lord, here's the deal. And this is the relationship I have with the Lord. I'm like, Lord, if this is what you want us to do, this is your problem to solve, not mine. I don't have to go into a debt reduction strategy. That's me trying to make this happen. It's up to you to solve this problem. If you solve the problem, I guess we'll go into missions. I didn't think it was going to happen. All of a sudden, I get a phone call within two weeks, and this person says, can I ask you a very personal question? Please don't be offended by it. And I said, yeah. They said, how much college debt do you have? And I was like, quite a bit. Why? And they're like, you know, is, it, is it one loan, two loans? How does it all work? And I was like, well, we got two loans, a really big one, and then a, a, then a not so big one, but it's still big, right? And he was like, how much is the, the not so big one? And I don't remember the exact amount, but here's what I can tell you. It was not a rounded figure. I actually knew because I'm the one that handles our budget. I knew exactly what the principal left on it was. And it was a very specific, like, you know, something 37 and 17 cents, right? And I say that, and I can literally hear him gasp on the other side of the phone. I go, what's going on? He says, I woke up. The Lord told me to pray for you as a couple today. And as I was praying for you, the Lord said I was supposed to write you a check for this exact amount and the 17 cents. And I said, 
I said, that can't be possible. And he goes, well, I didn't think it was possible. Number one, the number's way too big. So I was like, that's not the Lord. I had pizza last night or something. And he says, I went to go talk to my wife. And I said, uh, I had this weird thing happen this morning. I was praying for Josh and Danny. And then she, he says, she interrupts me and says, we're supposed to write them a check for 37 and 17 cents. And he's like, oh my gosh. He was like, and then you confirmed. He says, I'm sending you a check in the mail today. They sent the, the check in the mail. That part of our debt was absolved. We were under the debt threshold. And we, be, we announced to our church, we went to support raising training. They said, listen, because you're a, a, an established family with multiple children, expect that this is going to take a year. I said, I don't have a year. I've announced to my church I'm stepping down as their pastor. And long goodbyes are not always the best. So... I have a replacement in-house that's going to be taking over for me. I've given it six months to train him to do the job, and then we're out. I don't have a year. Our trainer, who's a missionary, who's raised support his whole life, I, I'm, I need faith in this moment, right? He looks at me, right, and he goes, it's going to take an act of God to raise your support in six months. I was like, not what I need to hear right now. And I remember looking at him, and I was like, you don't understand the journey to get here. God will, he'll, he'll do what he's going to do. And we raised full budget in five months and got on the field, right? So, so I know that the Lord has a plan. He brought us here. And from the moment we moved into Springfield, we had a plan being senior pastors. We used to tell every visitor that visited our church, hey, before you make a decision on whether you want to be a part of our church, give us at least three weeks. Because today might have been the best sermon or the worst sermon you've ever heard. And we want you to give us three weeks to see what we're really like. And then give a couple other churches three weeks. And then make an informed decision. So because that's what we told people, that's what we were going to do when we moved here. We showed up. Our very first Sunday was uh, Christmas weekend of 2017. And um, I think that, yeah, I think that's right. 2017. And we were like, we're going we're gonna to visit multiple churches right? We, we had all the plans. Like, we were going to visit here, James River North. Like, we were going to go all these different places. We came here, and everybody was so friendly. And it was the first time I've ever lived in a small town. We moved to Willard, right? I'm a city boy, through and through. I just need you to understand. First, first part of my life, grew up in the Northeast in Massachusetts in a town called New Bedford. None of you have heard of it unless you read Moby Dick. And then, and then my man right there. So I grew up there until I was 13. My dad's company uh, moved us to Indianapolis, and then I was, lived in Indianapolis for the rest of those years. And so always lived in the city, moved to Willard. I was like, I, I don't know if I, how I'm going to feel about a small town. Come to Brighton on the very first Sunday, and um, I'll never forget. First, first couple I meet is the Vaughns, okay? And uh, they're like, hey, never seen you before. We're like, yeah, we're brand new to the area. Where do you live? Willard. We live in Willard. Where? I was like, just hi off highway. Oh, they're like, second house from the corner on the bend with the blue door. I'm like, why do you know where my house is? <laughs> like, I was a little nervous about that. And then I met another couple, and then another couple, and I was like, oh my gosh, number one, everyone knows we're the new people in town. And everyone is so friendly. And so we came back, and we've never gone anywhere else. We've just been coming here the whole time. So uh, we love Brighton. It's our special place in our heart. And um, we're excited to be here. So I want to get to my assignment this morning. Um, so if you have your Bibles, would you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 16? And I want to open up with a quick story. How many of you know that there are things that you can 
think about a certain situation, but until you're in the situation, you don't really understand it, right? So the example is, again, being a city boy my whole life, there's things I learned when moving to a small town I had heard, I didn't know until I experienced it, right? Um, I didn't realize, like, when, when Willard has a parade, it's like the town shows up, right? The town shows up for local football games. That's like, that's the thing to do, you know? Um, I, I, it wasn't until I moved to the Midwest, I, I even heard of people putting gravy on their biscuits. I was like, what is that? <laughs> When I, I, when I moved here, they were like, you want some biscuits and gravy? And the only context I have is I'm thinking like Thanksgiving gravy on a bit. I'm like, why would you do that? sounds disgusting. And then they pull out this concoction of what looks like white concrete paste. And they pour it on a biscuit. And I'm like, no wonder people are so slower paced in the country. Nobody can move. We're full, you know, of carbs. And, uh, and so, like, you learn that there's, there's things that are just, that are just different, right? Well, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus is going to say to his disciples, hey, guys, I'm going to build a church. And this is going to be the first time his disciples have even heard this phrase. You should understand, they didn't have a context for a church. Because he didn't say, I'm going to build a synagogue. That would have made sense to them. He said, I'm going to build a church. And they're like, I, I don't even know what that is. What is he talking about? And then Jesus, as masterfully as he could, to unfold this idea, he puts them in a setting where there's sights and sounds and smells and says, I'm going to do something amazing with what I'm going to call a church. And so here's what I want us to accomplish this morning. I want to explain this passage. I want to draw out some truths from it with the hope that you will learn what Jesus had in mind when he said church. And then I want you to ask yourselves, is this what we as individuals are doing? Okay? So here's where this is going to be different. When I say church, I don't want you to think Brighton Assembly. I want you to think me as an individual belonging to the corporate body of Christ across the world. Does that make sense? Here's why I need to distinguish the difference. Because so oftentimes in church, when we think about the place that we gather, we can tend to put a lot of the responsibilities that Jesus put on us on the pastor. And we can say, listen, we need to reach people, pastor. Come on, are you with me this morning? I'm going to say things that, that I wish I would have always been able to say to my congregation as a pastor but you always feel a little bit intimidated to say. Now, I'm not saying that Brent feels all these things or whatever. I'm just saying I think God had something very specific in mind when he called us to be the church. And I think what we do on Sunday mornings is part of it. It's not the whole of it. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. I hope you all love me by the time this is over. I'm a truth teller. If any of you are offended with me at the end, the good news is I'm moving to Indianapolis in June. So <laughs> you'll never have to see me. All right? No, I'm just joking. Um, okay, so let's get into it. Matthew 16. I want to start in verse 13 and read to 18. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. Now Jesus and his disciples, they leave a town called Bethsaida. They take a 32-mile journey to a town called Caesarea Philippi. Today, if you were to go to Israel, Caesarea Philippi is now known as the Golan Heights. Caesarea Philippi at one time went by a different name in Jesus' time, and it was called Peneus. Peneus was named after a god in Greek mythology named Pan, and this is very significant. I want to show you what a picture of Pan looked like. Um, do you guys have that? Technical difficulties, that's okay. Whenever you get it working, you can show it, okay? So Pan is this really uh, weird-looking creature. He's half man, half goat, okay? And he was considered the god of nature, the god of wooded, rustic areas. Um, and because of that, there's no temples built to Pan. Pan was worshipped outdoors. He was worshipped in caves, and he's the god also over music. We have an instrument named after him called the pan flute. And he's also the god over fear and fright. And it's where we get our English word panic from. It came from the, the worship of the Greek god Pan. Jesus takes his disciples on this road trip, and he decides to stop at Peneus, a place where he is not known, he is not worshipped, in order to unpack one of God's great ideas, which is to create a community known as the church. A community so strong and so resilient that Jesus says even the gates of hell couldn't prevail against it. So the city gate is where the city elders met to make decisions that impacted the rest of the city. Think of it as the meeting place of the minds. It's where the city board meetings took place. So a reference to the gates of hell, I don't want you to think Jesus is saying the door of hell is not going to prevail. When Jesus says the gates of hell, he wants you to think like this. He's saying the governmental authority of hell cannot prevail. It's not just hell itself. It's Satan and his minions and all of his authority cannot prevail against what Jesus is going to create called the church. Someone say amen. He is saying that the governmental authority of evil cannot defeat the community that Jesus is going to build, specifically the church. Let me say it this way. The leadership of hell cannot do anything to negatively impact the expansion of the church. When Jesus says, I am going to build my church, that doesn't mean it relies on the talents of, of talented church planters or missionaries. Yes, we are faithful to do our job, but Jesus will build his church. We love people, we evangelize, we disciple, we win them to the kingdom of Christ, but he does the building of the church. He's the master builder. So notice... Jesus doesn't use the word synagogue. He doesn't say, and I will build my synagogue. He says, I'm going to build my church. And at this time, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, the church is a new idea. It's, it's another thing of note, is that when Jesus says he's going to build his church, he uses this Greek word called ekklesia. Now, I want to give you just a quick Greek 
um, lesson on this word because it's going to be really important to our text. Okay? Ecclesia is a Greek idea that was made popular by the Romans. It is a gathering of people that were called out and separated from the rest of the city. They met to participate in legislation. They declared war. They made peace. They negotiated treaties. They made alliances. And they elected officials. The Roman ecclesia would often gather around their emperor or king to hear and record his words. They also were responsible to make sure his desires and decrees were being implemented all over his kingdom. Some theologians have taught that the Caesar, after explaining what he wanted happening in his empire to his ecclesia, would then say to his ecclesia, now go into all the empire and give them the good news. Sound familiar? So here's what I want you to get. The ecclesia was a group of called out ones who were invited to hear the king's voice, know the king's heart, and then declare the king's message throughout the kingdom in order to reproduce the king's culture throughout the empire. Does that make sense? And Jesus says, I'm going to build that. So here's what the modern understanding for us today is. The Christian community we call the church is a group of people who are called out and invited to meet with the king in order to hear his voice, know his heart, and declare his message to the whole world in order to reproduce his culture in our schools, workplaces, neighborhoods, and cities. When Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, it doesn't just look like us coming to a building on Sunday morning and singing songs and listening to sermons, although that's part of it. It also looks like Melissa in the school system implementing kingdom culture and understanding in education to win kids to Christ. Come on. It looks like you. Can I speak to you specifically as seniors who are retired? Because this is one thing I always wanted to teach our seniors, and I tried my best. Sometimes, as seniors, I know you've worked a long time in life. You've done a lot. And in retirement, it's easy to want to coast. But can I tell you, there's no retirement in the kingdom. You're still called to make disciples. You don't, you don't get to just once in a while get on the John Deere, cut the lawn, and, and enjoy the sunshine. Like You might get to do that sometimes, but you're called to go reach people. And can I tell you who the perfect people are to reach? My generation. Do you know how many of us don't have fathers? Do you know how many of us had, had single moms who had to work two jobs to put food on the table so they weren't around either? you know how many of us had to raise ourselves? We need older people to grab us by the face and say there are people in this room who believe in you and know that you were made for greatness and made in the image of God. And if I have to step in as a father or mother and love you to maturity, I will do that. Listen, seniors, your job's not over. Get busy. There's no retirement in the kingdom. And if that sounds like, oh, I thought I was done. 
You will be one day. That day's not right now. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there's a job to do. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he said he would build his church. It had less to do with a place that we go to gather and more to do with a mindset of spreading a kingdom culture into our communities. It's great that we get to come together and sing and listen to a preacher, especially when they're good, right? I mean, I appreciate that. I love coming to church, to be honest with you. I love this morning, even the songs we sang. Sometimes maybe there's a mindset that my generation doesn't connect to the older songs, whatever. You have to understand, I got saved as a teenager and was discipled by people much older than me. And so when I was going to church, this is the songs they sang. I didn't know any new choruses or anything like that. I didn't learn any of that until I got to Bible college. And the people that discipled me, they said, if I could give you one piece of advice when you're a pastor, do everything you can to never leave seniors behind. They said, if you will make that commitment, I promise you, your congregation will be more mature because they have a lot to teach and a lot to offer. And so I always made seniors a priority in our church. So much so that we invested money into a full-time staff member to help teach me how to reach seniors. We did community outreaches, evangelistic efforts to seniors, right? I love older people. And I appreciate everything they bring to the church. And so we need you, and we need you involved. Does that make sense? Listen, my, at our church, my greatest usher, and I, when I say usher, I don't mean just take up the offering, like made things happen, was an 80-year-old woman named Mary Lou. She ran it. Three services on a weekend at our church, and she was the boss. And you didn't make Mary Lou upset. She let you know, right? I mean, she let me know. She's like, Pastor, you say you want me to get this done, but when you preach that long, I can't get my job done. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'll get shorter next service, right? And Mary Lou, now 85, 86, still running stuff at the church. Listen, you have stuff you can do, okay? All right, so I believe that when Jesus said he was gonna build his church, what Jesus had in mind had less to do with gathering a large assembly into a building, although I do think that's part of it. I wanna be clear. And it had more to do with taking his mindset and his message into our communities until our communities look like his kingdom. Be very clear. It means that we take what we learned from Pastor Brent, implement it in Willard, in Ashgrove, in Bolivar, until Willard, Ashgrove, and Bolivar look like the kingdom of heaven. That, that's what this means. This is what Jesus had in mind. And the question is, how are we doing? Well, is Willard all Christian yet? No, it's not, okay? I can tell you because I, ha I have a neighbor. <laughs> I know he's not saved, right? So and we have many conversations in the driveway about Jesus. Um, I want you to take note that Jesus says, when, when he says, I'm gonna build my church, he doesn't say I'm gonna build it in a valley or on a hillside, I'm gonna build it on a rock. And, and, he, and he says specifically, on this rock I will build my church. Now, what does that mean? Well, believe it or not, um, Protestants and Catholics have gotten into fights about the meaning of this specific text, okay? And let me explain the, the two beliefs here. So the Catholic interpretation 
They say, when Jesus says he's going to build his church, he's talking to Peter, and it means he's going to build his church with Peter as the first pope or the first leader, okay? And so Protestants have said, boo, Catholics, you're wrong, right? Uh, but to be fair, okay, don't stone me for saying this, um, Peter's name is Petra, which does mean rock, and, and he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, the rock, the Spirit of God did, and upon you, Petros, I'm going to build my church. To also be fair, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit is poured out on the church, and everyone's like, what is this thing? Who's the first person to get up and lead the whole movement? Peter. So, I don't think we need to say, boo, Catholics. I, I think, like, okay, maybe you have something there, okay? The Protestant understanding has been, when Jesus says he's going to build his church upon this rock, he means the rock-solid truth that Peter confessed, that Jesus is the Christ. We're going to build the church on the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I love that interpretation. I think that's really good. And I think that that's very much true. But could I pose to you maybe even a third option? I'd like to suggest that maybe when Jesus said, I would build my church upon this rock, the fact that Jesus is in Peneus saying this is on purpose. I'd like to suggest, because I'd like to suggest this interpretation because Jesus is at a place near Mount Hermon. And in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to understand what specific rock Jesus might be talking about. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in modern-day Syria. On one of the sides of the mountain is this large cliff, and in, in the cliff is a cave. You can go there to this day. It still exists. I actually have a picture of it. It's right there. This is, this is where many theologians, many biblical scholars, believe Jesus is sitting with the disciples when they're having this conversation. And if you notice, on the far left is a cave, and that is the cave of Pan. That's where they worship the Greek god Pan. Okay? On the sides of the cave, you see these little cutouts. They would stick idols in there, and um, if this was in full color, you would see that the parts of the rock are red from sacrifices that were made, the blood of animals that have stained the rocks over time. And so, this was a very dark place. As a matter of fact, um, when I, out of curiosity, when I studied, like, okay, so what was pan worship like? Um, some of the stuff they would do, I can't even repeat in a church service. It's very vile, very disgusting, okay? Um, very evil to worship pan, all right? And Jesus is at that place. He's at the base of that cliff where he says, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. Now, something that's interesting is the Jordan River flows through the cave of Pan. And many um, in Greek mythology and stuff, they believed that this, this, you would go on the Jordan River through the cave of Pan, and that was the entrance to Hades. They actually called the cave of Pan the gate of hell. I think maybe you start to see where I'm going with this, right? Jesus says, and upon this rock... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think Jesus potentially is sitting there with his disciples 
And he's saying, I want to establish a community that changes the world. And I'm not gonna pick the easiest place to do it. I'm gonna pick some of the darkest places. Because it's in the darkest places that my light shines the brightest. I think God's calling his believers to go into places that would not be easy. Listen, it, it's, it's easy to shine the light of Jesus in a place where a lot of people believe Jesus is kind of the answer already. Does that make sense? One of the things that God stirred in my heart to prepare me for coming into Chi Alpha is even though I'm not good at evangelism, there isn't anything more that I love than to see someone get saved and to see someone get baptized. I'm excited we're having baptisms in next service. Like it's like I, it's my favorite thing as a Christian to see in a church. Um, I'm gonna be very vulnerable with you about my weakness as a, as a lead pastor when I was one. Our church grew pretty rapidly. Um, we planted it, and within 13 years, we had about 450 people coming between three services. We went multi-site, opened up even a third location. Our church was about 800 people when we had all three locations. But I couldn't shake the fact that every single Sunday, every visitor I met had the same story. And it was this. I used to go to this church but I wasn't being fed. Or I used to go to this church and I didn't really like the worship. I used to go to this church and I didn't really care for the preaching. And so now we're checking out this church. And so I had this glooming thought that like my church is growing, but it's at the expense of all the other churches in our community closing down. I'm shifting fish to my pond, but we're not adding any fish. And then I asked our administrative assistant, I said, how many people, because we used to track this in our software, how many people did we baptize this last year? And she comes back to me, and she says, five. Church of 800 people, and baptized five people. Five converts in a year. And we were spending a lot of money. We had a lot of staff, and I just got to a point, I was like, are we doing this right? And that's at the same time Andy asked me to come speak at this Chi Alpha retreat. And they baptized 12 students. And that's not their only baptism that will happen that year. They'll have two more. And I look at them and I'm like, what, what do you guys operate on financially? And Missouri State Chi Alpha operates on less than $40,000 a year. And I'm like, th that, is, that is like a small fraction of what my church was spending to win people. And we're not even baptizing that many people. I'm like, what are we doing wrong? And when I started looking at it, the Lord was, was showing me like, the one thing that Chi Alpha at Missouri State got that my church didn't is my church became consumers. They became people that were hungry for a good word and some great worship, but they weren't doing anything to transform the community Monday through Saturday. 
And these students, every day of the week, are walking in their classrooms realizing God called me to be a missionary. The missionaries aren't the people that go to churches and raise funds like myself. They realize the missionaries are every follower of Jesus Christ. And so they walk into their classes reaching students. They go to campus events reaching students. And they're winning people to Jesus. I mean, just this week, one of our student leaders texts me, and he's like, this hostile atheist that has been in our community, I don't know why he comes. He hates God, doesn't what? and it's funny that he hates God. He doesn't even believe in God. How do you hate something you don't believe in? And our student leader's like, but he hangs out with us because he says we're loving and we're the closest thing to family he's ever experienced. And this week he says he told me he's this close to converting, right? He's got a couple questions left. We have a young man that gave his life to Christ and got discipled by Marcus Martin, who came from this church. This young man that Marcus won was at our outreach event this year, flipping us off at our event. Double birds, both hands. Right, like, I don't need any of you kai of people, woo, you know, flying us, telling us we're number one, okay? And he's a Christian now, being discipled by Marcus, and is potentially walking through our leadership process to be a disciple maker next year. Like, what? And, and I look at it, and I go, Man, if we would grab hold of the call that Jesus put on us when he called us to be a church, we would see these things. We just have to go into the dark places. And none of us like to go there, right? I mean, it's scary to go to the dark. But what's there to be afraid of? Greater is he that lives in you than anything that's in this world. And if we believe the theology of our hymns, Jesus is already king. Satan's already a defeated foe. I gotta be honest with you. I think sometimes we give Satan more power than he actually has. I, I, I used to go to testimony services. Anyone know what a testimony service is, right? Of course you know what that is, right? I remember going to testimony services and you know it's funny, when you walk into church and you're a, a new believer and you don't know how everything works, I would hear testimonies like this, well, the devil's just been crushing me this week and he's winning wars and punching me all over the place and bless God, hallelujah. <laughs> and I'd hear these testimony services and I'm like, it sounds like the devil's like really strong and Jesus ain't that tough. When you hear some of these testimonies, right? But I read my Bible and I realized, no, the enemy's already a defeated foe. Jesus is powerful and Jesus said, we don't have to be afraid because the church will prevail at the gates of hell. Listen, the image is not church and hell is at our gate and we're on the defensive. The image is that church is at the gates of hell on the offensive. We're taking names. We're winning wars. And they're trying to fight against us and they can't win. So, what does that have to do with you and I right here, right now? If it hasn't been clear, let me say it this way. Long before you and I were born, God had an idea. His idea was to create a community that would showcase his ways and his heart to the world. The community was to be a foretaste of what he's really like. 
Let me say this. The church is supposed to be the trailer to the feature film. The feature film is heaven. We're supposed to give the world a foretaste of that. Okay? The community that God designed, of which we are a part, was given the power through the words it spoke, the way it lived, to pull the kingdom of God to the earth. And sometimes I think we forgot how significant our role actually is. I say that because from my perspective, I meet a lot of Christians believing that because they are faithful church attenders and volunteer in a classroom or a part of a small group, they are fully living out the kingdom of God. And let me tell you this, unless you are stepping into the darkest places and reaching people for Jesus, you're not living out the full kingdom experience. The Apostle Paul didn't advance the kingdom of God by simply attending small groups. He went to dark places and brought the light. And although I believe corporately singing and worshiping and listening to sermons and, and being a part of small groups is very important to the life of the church, it is where we get our marching orders. It's not the game. This is like, I look at it this way. Pastor Brent, this is how I see you on Sunday. You are my coach. I come on Sunday, you're giving me the game plan, and then I implement it Monday through Saturday. This isn't the game. This is halftime. This is like, here's what we do, team. Now go. And I, and I, don't, think, I don't think Jesus wanted any Christians on the bench. He wants us all in the game. Everybody plays. And to be really clear, we need to do everything we can to go where evil and brokenness abounds and announce the good news of the king. Oftentimes, God leads you to places of, of pain and despair where it seems impossible to see his work or activity. And it's in those places where we can most powerfully confess the lordship of Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus came to be the Lord of everything, not just of church services and Christians. He came to be Lord on the streets where junkies and prostitutes live and work. And Jesus isn't afraid of those places. Oftentimes he asks us to go there and shows us the brokenness and asks us the same question he asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? The next time you encounter despair or immorality or hurt, you can stand with Peter and answer confidently because if Jesus is Lord at the gates of hell, then he is Lord of all. So starting today, go be the church and let people know who the Lord of all is and how desperately he wants to have a relationship with every single person. So I close with this. This is why we're going to Indianapolis. The campus we're going to, none of you have heard of. IUPUI is not a school anyone knows. But it's a school everyone in the city of Indianapolis knows. 30,000 students, hardly any campus ministry in a city of a million people. One of six universities. The most prominent university in Indianapolis is Butler. There's Chi Alpha at one of the six. And what the Lord put on our heart is as dark as Indianapolis is. Because it is. Like, like Brother Greer can let you know what it's like on a university setting. And we've been fortunate that at Missouri State, we have a Christian believing president. That's not going to be my experience when I go to Indianapolis. I just want you to know that. Okay? Think about Everything that you think is a terrible agenda in the world, it all exists at the university. And they're forcing it on students. That's what we're walking into. And we don't have a, 
people behind us in administration wanting us to be there. It's a dark place, but it's my home city. It's my fellow Hoosiers, and they don't have anyone announcing the kingdom of God on their campuses. And so the Lord said, Josh, who better qualified to go than one of the locals who has a heart for the people, who knows the city, who knows the culture, go tell them about me and win them. And so my wife and I and our kids and six other people, four from Missouri State, a young couple that were outreach pastors in the city of Indianapolis who have now resigned their position, are raising funds and joining us. The eight of us are going in to IUPUI with this mission in mind. We're gonna start a Chi Alpha we're going to get it as healthy as possible, create an internship program, spit out pioneering teams to pioneer every campus within the 465 loop around the city so that every university in Indianapolis has a thriving spirit-filled community of Chi Alphans there. And then from there, we're going to ask every graduating senior who's been discipled through our ministry to pray about if you're called to the marketplace, get a job in the city, move into neighborhoods in groups of eight to 10 and start to win your neighbors the way we taught you how to reach students. And I believe that if we just start reaching our neighbors and start making disciples, we can't help but have churches in every pocket of the city. And so our goal is every campus, every neighborhood in the city of Indianapolis have a spirit-filled disciple-making community in it. I'm crazy enough to believe it's going to happen. Because God called us to this. So Brighton, thank you for the way you've invested in us, for the way you've loved our family, for the way this children's ministry has loved our kids. We are a product of this church, and everything we do in the city of Indianapolis will be attributed to your glory as well. And all for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for this church. I thank you for the many impactful ways that, that Brighton Assembly has reached its communities, is reaching parts of the world through the missions efforts that it supports. God, I pray your hand of blessing on this church, your hand of blessing upon Pastor Brett and Melissa and their staff team here. God, I pray that this church would continue to be a beacon of light in a very dark world that you would let them see a lot of fruit from all of the labor that they have sown. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you, Josh. Can you give him another hand? Are you guys ready to go be the church? I'm just like, ah, let's go, let's go. I'm so excited, just completely pumped up and super excited for what they're gonna do whenever they move back to Indianapolis. So if the ushers will come forward, we're gonna take up an offering to support Josh and Danny. Um, just to let you know, we already support them monthly as a church family, and so they are one of our missionaries. Um, and so this offering is going to help further them to get them going and launched and get started. Um, and so we appreciate whatever you have to give, and we know the Lord will bless it and multiply it. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much, God. God, just for the opportunity to come together, Lord, to be in your house, to learn a little bit more about you, God, to get fired up, to go reach people for God. And I just pray, Lord, that as we sow gifts, Lord, into this ministry, Lord Jesus, that you would multiply, 
God, the things that we give. Lord, if we're giving out of sacrifice, if we're giving out of, of obedience, if we're giving out of abundance, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would take these gifts that we have to give, God, and that you would use them for your kingdom, God, that you would get the glory and that you would get the praise, Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that you would bless us, God, for our obedience, Lord Jesus. But Lord, the most important thing is that souls are one for Christ, Lord God. So I pray that every penny, Lord, that comes in today, God, will be used for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you're giving today, I just have a few announcements to remind you of. First of all, I believe Josh has extra books out in the lobby. So if you're interested in purchasing one of those,